Second Corinthians chapter 4 is where we read just a moment ago. Of course, that's where I'm speaking from. And I've entitled my message, Encouraging Reasons to Serve. This should be an encouraging message for you, for all of us as believers. Encouraging reasons to serve because you are a chosen vessel. You could make that a subtitle, I suppose. You are a chosen vessel. The Snake River Canyon in Idaho opened its 1,700-foot jaws and swallowed a strange capsule several years ago. It was the two-wheeled wonder known as Evil Knievel and his Sky Cycle. Now, if you saw the Sky Cycle and you understand a little bit about speed or physics and weight, even a fifth grader would have been able to say, he isn't going to be able to get over the canyon, and he didn't. But the showman would put on quite a show, and he gathered quite a crowd. He didn't make it. When the sky cycle, as it was called, plummeted to the valley below, Evil Knievel floated down in a parachute, not crashing and being taken to the hospital. Instead, there was a Brinks truck that took all the money to the bank for Evil Knievel. Evil Knievel made a very lucrative living doing stunts. He was a stuntman doing stunts most of the time, which were unsuccessful. But most of the time, he had a promoter that promoted him in such a way that people came and paid a lot of money to either watch it on TV or in person to do something that most of us would say, I would never attempt to do that. That's how he made his living. Not failure. But low aim is the crime, Teddy Roosevelt said. I think Evil Knievel mastered that phrase. Not failure, but low aim is the crime. Winston Churchill said this, success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. Now let's think about that. It's not Bible, but it's a good statement. Success is not final, and failure is not fatal, but it is the courage to continue that count. That's true in the Christian life. Not failure, but low aim. Sometimes we set our sights too low in our Christian experience. Those who attempt to serve God, I hope that includes all of us here today, maybe everyone that's listening, all of us who attempt to serve God in any age will face discouragement. And you may be facing discouragement today. Discouragement comes in various forms. It may be human limitations. You may be at a point in your life because of illness, age, whatever. You're facing some human limitations. It may come by people who are indifferent to the gospel. Sometimes it's the people that we live with. Or sometimes it's those in our greater family, those that we work with, those that we live around in our neighborhood. They're just an indifference to the gospel. Or it could be the aggressiveness of evil in our day. But it's always been aggressive. But it seems as though there is an aggressiveness about evil in our day that is clouding the gospel and the testimony of Christians. But Paul gives us some reasons for encouragement. So we should learn them well from this passage. We should learn well what Paul is telling us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, why we should be encouraged. Reasons for encouragement. Number one, 
I see in verses 1 through 6, because we have a glorious gospel. We have a glorious ministry, we would say. That's why we should take encouragement. He says, and we'll reread it, therefore, since we have this ministry. So he's talking to the Corinthians, but he's talking to all of us. Every person who's saved has a ministry. Because we have this ministry, we have received mercy and we do not lose heart. Old King James says, we do not faint. In other words, we don't throw up our hands. We don't give up because we've received mercy and now we have a ministry. We cannot quit is what he's saying. Paul states we have this ministry, referring to the ministry that he talked about in chapter 3 that we studied last week in our message, the message of the gospel. When he says we have this ministry, he's talking about the preaching, the sharing of the gospel with those who do not know Christ. The way that we look at our ministry, and if we agree, we all have a ministry, some may be wider some may be more public, whatever, but we all have a ministry. But the way we look at our ministry determines how we will fulfill it. The way you look at your ministry, your God-given ministry, determines how you will fulfill it. It is glorious, Paul says. It is glorious, not odious. It is a privilege, not a burden. So having a right view of the ministry, having a right view, maybe we would even say of the Christian life or evangelism in the Christian life, having a right view of the ministry will keep us from committing some specific problem that he mentions here. Let's look at them in verse 1. It will keep you from being a quitter. Having a right view of the ministry will keep you from being a quitter. Now Paul was subject to discouragement just like the rest of us. He admitted the trials he had experienced in Asia. Remember two chapters ago, chapter 1, verse 8, he says, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves. So Paul is being very transparent in verses 8 and 9 about his difficulties, his discouragement. Paul was just like the rest of us. Things didn't turn out the way he thought they should or the way he hoped that they would always, but he kept going. He admitted the trials he experienced in Asia almost drove him to despair. That may be true of some people listening to me today. But with divine calling, there is also divine enablement. With divine calling, and all of us have a divine calling, God promises divine enablement so we don't quit. A discouraged pastor wrote to the great Scottish preacher Alexander White about quitting the ministry. And White wrote back, he said, Never think of giving up preaching. The angels around the throne of God envy your great work. In other words, he's saying the angels would trade places with you. They would love to have the privilege of preaching the gospel. Don't give up, is what White wrote back to him and encouraged him. Great achievements are often only reached by those who missed many times before. 
Great achievements are often only reached by those who attempted and failed, attempted and failed, attempted and failed in the past. Failures are temporary tests preparing us for future victories when we bathe them in God's grace and in prayer. Failures are temporary tests preparing us for future victories. There is only one guarantee against all future failures. That's death. I don't think any of us are looking for that. Because we have a right view of the ministry, it will keep us from being a quitter, Paul says in verse 1. Look at verses 2 through 4. It will keep you from being a deceiver. There were people that were doing things to gather a crowd. There were people that were preaching and saying things that would placate people and attract people. And Paul says, we can't do that. Having a right view of the ministry, the long view of the ministry, a view that says, I'm here to glorify God, not just get results, that will keep you from becoming a deceiver, he says in verses 2 through 4. But we have renounced, we have thrown off, we have rejected the hidden things of shame, he says. That could be talking about sin, it could be talking about making the gospel more palatable. And more desirable. We have renounced the hidden things of shame. We do not walk in craftiness, nor handle the word of God in a deceitful way, he says. But by manifestation of the truth, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And what happens if they don't receive that gospel? If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Verse 4 whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine into them. Paul here in verses 2 through 4 is alluding back to the false teachers. Remember, we talked about them, who came into the church at Corinth after Paul left, and they were preaching a legalistic gospel. Yes, you need Christ, but you have to keep the law, etc. And they were confusing the brethren there. So Paul is alluding to these false teachers who were resting the scriptures, who were twisting the scriptures. Biblical literature, to be understood properly, must be interpreted correctly. For the Bible to be understood properly, it must be interpreted correctly. There are laws of interpretation. You can't just take a a phrase or a text and make it mean something that it doesn't mean in the context or in the greater teaching of Scripture. And that's what was going on. So Paul was warning about them, but he's warning to us today that there are teachers that rest the Scriptures and twist the Scriptures. They are deceivers, and they're walking in craftiness and handling the Word of God deceitfully, making money out of the gospel for themselves. So... Paul is saying, I had nothing to hide. (laughs) That's what he says right here. I have nothing to hide. Paul had nothing to hide in his personal life or in his preaching. He was saying, examine it. Cross-reference it, maybe we would say. Paul had nothing to hide in his life or in his preaching. His life was an open book and his preaching was straightforward. That's what he tells us. He says, Not handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth. By plainly, the word manifestation is by plainly teaching the truth. 
commending ourselves to every man's conscience. We lay out the scriptures, Paul says, and we ask God to work on their conscience. We commend the scriptures to every man's conscience and ask the Holy Spirit to convict them, to draw them, to save them. He says, I just preach the scriptures plainly, not deceitfully, not in a fashion that's handling the word of God improperly. He said, I just lay out the gospel and let God do the work. So Paul had nothing to hide in his preaching. Some preachers' lives are characterized by hypocrisy. And their preaching is full of unbiblical blather, we could say. Paul was not about to manipulate and deceive people simply to gather a crowd or to fill the coffers. That's not what he was about. And he was warning us about that. Not just gathering a crowd, tickling their ears, or filling up the pews, or filling up the coffers. And so they, they question, well, if you commend the word of God to every man's conscience, why aren't there more converts, Paul? So Paul answers that question. He says in verse 3, if our gospel is veiled, remember he used that phrase in the previous chapter that the Jews have a veil over their eye. They missed Christ. They rejected him because he wasn't a political leader. They have a veil. He says, even unto this day, there's a veil over their eyes where they cannot understand the scriptures. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who, you could say, refuse to believe, who refuse to believe, lest the light of the glorious gospel, which is about Jesus Christ, shines in them. Because they've rejected him, there's a veil over their eye. They don't want to receive Christ, so they're in darkness. That's what Paul is pointing out. So we have to accept the fact that there are some people that are in darkness, they're not seeing the gospel. That doesn't mean that we don't keep giving them the gospel. But if they reject Jesus Christ, they're not going to be saved. They're not receiving the gospel. He's telling us, don't change the gospel. Don't manipulate the truth. Don't boil down the gospel so it has no teeth in it. The truth has no teeth in it any longer. Just preach it and commend it to every man's conscience and let God work. Let God draw them. He's answering the question, why didn't he have more converts? Because of man's fallen nature. It is easier for lost people to believe a lie. That's why when the Antichrist comes, the Bible says, except for the very elect of God, they will believe a lie. It's easier for lost people to believe a lie than the truth. Because the truth has consequences with it too. So does a lie. But the truth then ushers us into the Christian life and surrender and submission, a lot of other things. But because of man's fallen nature, it's easier for him to believe a lie than to believe the truth. The Jews' minds were veiled, the Bible says, and the Gentiles followed all the gods of the pagan world, he tells us in verse 4. A right view of the ministry will keep you from being a quitter, it will keep you from being a deceiver, verses 2 through 4. And number 3, it will keep you from being a self-promoter. It will keep you from being a self-promoter. What does he say in verse 5? We do not preach ourselves, 
When Paul got in the pulpit, when Paul got behind the sacred death, it wasn't all about Paul. It was all about Jesus. That's what he's saying. We do not preach ourselves. We don't even come up with our doctrine. We just preach the Bible. We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves as bondservants for Jesus' sake. We don't preach about us. We preach about Christ, and we're simply his servants, he's saying. Verse 6, for it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in the hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So what is Paul saying? Paul's saying, we don't preach ourselves. We don't lord it over people. We don't even demand respect. Paul was not a dictator exploiting people, but a servant who was helping people. And he holds that model out to us today. We're to be servant leaders. We preach Jesus Christ the Lord, he says. We don't preach a church. We don't preach a religion. We preach a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what he tells us. That is simple evangelism. That is introducing people to Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask you, when was the last time you introduced someone you know that's lost to Jesus Christ? When was the last time you said, you know, I don't know if I've had the opportunity to tell you what a difference Jesus Christ has made in my life, but he's made a world of difference, not just in eternity, but right now. And that's what Paul is challenging us with. It's not just promoting a church or promoting a, you know, a movement or anything like It's just introducing people to Jesus Christ. We preach not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, he says. Now, frankly, it would have been easy for Paul to build a fan club everywhere he went. He was famous. He was the leading rabbi in Judaism until he got converted. Now he's the leading Christian evangelist throughout the Mediterranean world. It would have been easy for Paul to build a fan club capturing followers who wanted to be associated with a very gifted, persuasive, powerful man. People are drawn to that kind of a person. It would have been easy. But Paul says we don't preach ourselves. It's not about Paul. It's not about any man. It's about Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. And that's a warning. When someone's always promoting themselves, their book or their ministry or whatever it is, it's a warning sign. Paul says, no, we just preach Christ. We don't try to build up a fan club. It was Christ who was being lifted up. In verse 6, Paul compares. Look at verse 6 again. He says, for it is God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness. What does that sound like, Genesis chapter 1? He's comparing salvation to creation. And that's done several times in Scripture. It says, for it is God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When we see the face of Jesus Christ, we see the glory of God. Jesus radiates the glory of God. Paul is comparing creation of the world with the salvation of an individual here in verse 6. And by the way, they're both miraculous. Both miraculous. The earth was 
The Bible says without form and void. Even before that, there was nothing. And then God spoke and, and he created matter. And then the earth in its early form was without form and void. It was just a mass, a blob, maybe we'd say, of matter. Some making up water, some making up earth. And he spoke and it was formed ex nihilo, out of nothing, is the idea. And that which was formless and void receives the light and it begins to take on shape and it begins to take on life. We see that in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And we see it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation, the Bible says. He's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. The reality is, the application of that verse is, if you say that you're saved, but your life has not changed, you can question your salvation. Now, maybe you got saved at an early age and didn't drudge through all the wickedness of the world. That's one thing. But if you say that you're saved and your life hasn't been changed, you, get, you have every reason to question the reality of your conversion. Because we're new creatures. We're new creations. So are you. And as he takes the analogy one step further, he compares the light like the gospel coming into our life. Is the light of God's word, is the, the light of the world come into your life to illumine your heart, your mind, your eyes? So you see truth from error. We've seen that we have this glorious ministry and a right view of the ministry keeps us from committing some grievous errors. It will keep you from being a quitter, verse 1. Keep you from being a deceiver, 2 through 4. It will keep you from being a self-promoter, verses 5 through 6. The second thing Paul says in this passage is we have a valuable treasure. Not only do we have a glorious ministry, we have a valuable treasure. I don't know if you think about it that way, but that's exactly what he tells us here. We have treasure. He's not talking about your 401k. He's not talking about classic antique cars. He's talking about the gospel. What does he say here in verse 7? For we have this treasure, us as believers, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. So he's using an analogy again. In earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Remember, we don't preach ourselves, we preach God, that the power may be of God and not of us. For we are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. So we have this valuable treasure. Now the reality is most of us have seen a TV show or a movie or, or we've read a story involving some harrowing race to find a treasure. And that's happened out here in the West with that man who buried that uh, treasure worth uh, several million dollars to discover this hidden treasure. But when the stash is found, when this treasure is found, we realize it was stored in an ordinary container, maybe even in a very public place in plain sight. That's the picture right here. That is what we learn from these verses. Look at verses 7 through 9. He describes the construction of the vessel. The construction of the vessel. Verse 7, he says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. What is he referring to? He's referring to your body. 
He's referring to us. We're earthen vessels. What is an earthen vessel? It's a clay pot. Clay pots are made out of clay, which comes from the ground. We have this treasure in clay pots. And by the way, in the ancient world, that's where treasures were often hidden in clay pots, stashed away somewhere. Because clay pots were one of the most common things of the ancient world. In the world of antiquities, potsherds, which are pieces of clay pot, is the most common thing we have from the ancient world because they're somewhat preserved after they get hard. And they often painted pictures on them or wrote on them. So we've learned the most from the ancient world from potsherds, pieces of clay pots. Paul is carrying out this analogy. We came from the dirt just like clay pots come from the dirt. So that's, by the way, there's nothing flattering about that description. <laughs> If you think about it, he's describing your life and he's describing my body. He says, you're just like a dirt pot. You're just like a clay pot. It's not the pot. It's the treasure in the pot that's so important. Nothing flattering about that description of us. Clay pots were very common, very ordinary items in the ancient world. The equivalent of today's empty peanut butter jars. I like peanut butter. I had some yesterday with stalks of celery. You know, I stick the celery in there and have that uh, peanut butter on the celery. It's got a little protein, a little bit of fiber, a little bit of vegetable. It's just a perfect blend of food, I suppose. Fills you up. That's what I had for supper. A few carrots too. But you, you say, man, that's a really good looking jiffy peanut butter jar. I'm going to wash this up and man, I'm going to keep this thing. This is really attractive. No. We stick it in the trash, and the trash man takes it away. Very common, very ordinary. Our lives are compared to ordinary earthen pot, but we contain a treasure, the glorious message of the gospel. That's the point Paul is making. Don't miss it. We're ordinary, we're plain, we're common, but it's the treasure that we have, the treasure of the gospel that makes us so valuable. Because we are earthen vessels, we must depend upon God's power. We're not brass pots. We're not stainless steel pots like in an operating room. We're earthen vessels, and so we have to depend upon God's power. And we need to be empty vessels so God can fill us with the truth. We've got to empty ourselves of self so God can fill us with his truth. The most important characteristic of a Christian vessel is that you are cleansed from sin, you're empty of self, and you're available to God. That's the most important thing about being a, a clay pot that belongs to God. My parents drank instant coffee on the farm. My dad got up at 4.30 every morning, I think of my life. I don't remember my dad ever going to the hospital, ever, ever being sick where he didn't get up and milk those Holsteins. We got up later and went out and did our chores. My dad got up at 4.30, put a teapot on the stove, and after it got hot, he would pour that hot water into his coffee pot, his coffee mug. Now, he kept the same tea kettle forever. It was stainless steel but you would have never known it. It 
had been used for so long, for so many years, that the handle was broken and it was duct taped. You know, you pull that little trigger and it would lift up that little whistle, but the whistle was broken, so it no longer whistled. The trigger didn't pull and the whistle was gone because that had gotten broken somewhere along the line. And he would put it on the stove and it had been used for so long that the copper bottom on it, the stainless steel, but it had a copper bottom, it had flame retardant, uh, you know, stuff all around it. It had been scorched by the flame, so it was very unattractive. And on our farm, we had well water, and it was high mineral content. And truthfully, we didn't know it then, but whenever I go back there, it smells like rotten eggs because it's got sulfur or something in it, and it just it smells very poorly but it's a high mineral content, not a deep well. And so he would fill it up, and, but over time, the minerals collected in that tea kettle, and you would, you would think you would pick up a light little tea kettle, but you pick it up and you feel like, whoa, that's, a, that's like picking up a five-pound dumbbell or something because it was lined with minerals. So here's this teapot that my dad used to make instant coffee, which... Why people drink instant coffee is beyond me, you know. It just tastes bad. And I'm a coffee drinker. I say, if something ails you, you probably need another cup of coffee, you know. Have you had your enough coffee yet today? But it wasn't fine china, that's for sure. But it did the job. It boiled the water and into the cup and put the coffee in there and it produced the caffeine that went into his body that made him go out to the barn and work with the cows it did the job it wasn't attractive it isn't something you would have ever used with company coming over or something like that but it did the job that coffee pot that pot is like many of us sorry for the analogy but that coffee pot or teapot is like many of us, scarred and chipped and repaired a little here and there, burned around the edges, and maybe even a little clogged up. It's about as far as I can take the analogy, okay? Scarred, chipped, repaired, burned, and clogged up. But the treasure we bear is not diminished by the vessel. Do you get what I'm saying? The treasure that we bear is not diminished by the vessel that contains it. In fact, the container is made more valuable by the contents that it bears. That's the point Paul is making. That the only thing valuable about us is that we've been saved and now we know the gospel and we can share that gospel with other people is what the point he's making. Amen? It's not how we look. It's not what we own. It's not where our house is located. It's not where we vacation. It's the gospel that we get to share. The container is made valuable by its contents. Verse 7 says, basically, we came from dirt. Verses 8 and 9 says, we are made to be durable. That's what it's saying. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. 
struck down but not destroyed, always caring about in our body, in the body, the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life, we have the message of the dying of the Lord Jesus, so the message of the life of Jesus might be made manifest. So Paul uses here four metaphors from the Roman arena to describe the demands of the ministry and the fact that he was, he was still going and the fact that, that we can be beaten down, we can be persecuted, we can be slammed to the mat, we can bring on all kinds of problems, but we do not quit. Remember, that's what this passage is teaching. We do not quit. He's contrasting the human helplessness with the divine enablement. Yes, we're hard-pressed. Yes, we're crushed. Yes, we're times perplexed. Yes, at times we're persecuted. That's just part of being a weak, frail human being. But God enables us. Divine enablement just stands out from the rest of the world. There's almost a note of celebration here because without God's intervention, these troubles would have broken Paul. That's why I said I, I love 2 Corinthians because it's Paul very transparent in 2 Corinthians about his struggles and his trial. Without God's intervention, without God's enabling grace, these troubles would have broken Paul. And most of us don't like to talk about our troubles as Paul is doing right here. Most of us don't like to stand up in front of a crowd and say, well, I've got this problem in my life. I've got this problem in my home. I've got this physical problem that's going on. I'm struggling in this area with my finances and job. We don't like to talk about that. But that's exactly what Paul is doing. We don't like to talk about our failures, our human weaknesses, our personal frailties. But God is glorified in weak, common vessels. If you got it all together and you're Mr. or Mrs. Perfect, <laughs> then you're not fit for ministry. Because God uses weak people. So the light of the glorious gospel shines through them. And I think I can appreciate that the older I get and the more things keep going south on me. <laughs> you, you've heard me say I had six eye surgeries in the last year cataracts and retinas and eyelids and I'm not going to do what this passage says I'm not going to glory in all my other infirmities I don't want to share them with you but sometimes you say well, okay God I believe you I am a weak vessel I'm a clay pot I'm cracked I'm chipped I, I'm, I'm clogged but I hope the light of the glorious gospel shines through me. And when we're real with people and we don't pretend to have it all together and they can identify with our struggles and our problems, it gives us a bridge to take the gospel into their life. Because they don't have to think, well, i got to be perfect to become a Christian. No, you don't have to be. Paul was not afraid of suffering and trials because he knew God would guard the vessel if he guarded the treasure. That's what he's saying. God's going to take care of me as long as I protect the treasure, as long as I'm truth embodied, as long as I hang on to the gospel and I don't compromise it and I, I preach the word, as long as I hang on to that, God's going to take care of me because I'm a weak vessel. 
Hudson Taylor, who opened up China to the gospel, said this. All of God's giants, all of God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on him being with them. Whoa. Weak men who counted on God being with them. Sometimes God permits the vessel, this body. Sometimes God permits our vessels to be violently jarred. Cancer comes into our life, a back surgery that puts us out for weeks, months. Sometimes God allows a violent jarring of the vessel so the contents spill out. Something happens in our life where people see what's really inside of us and hopefully they see the gospel of Jesus Christ. The treasures spill out and enrich the lives of others. Sometimes that only happens when we're really jarred as a vessel. We're really shaken up. Look at the contents of the vessel. Verses 10 through 12 talked about the uh, construction of the vessel now the contents what does he say here in verse 10 always always caring about in our body the dying of the lord jesus in other words it's always on our heart always on our mind the death resurrection of christ always caring about in our body the dying of the lord jesus that his life the life of jesus also may be manifest for we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our mortal flesh. So death is working in us. Yes, we're dying. Yes, we're going away. We're going old. The pot is wearing out, maybe we would say. So the death is working in us, but life is working in you. Paul is saying, I'm giving my life. But I'm dying in doing this ministry, but it's bringing life to many others. What more noble purpose could we have than that? Always caring about in our bodies. Paul continues using the picture of a vessel filled with something. For us, the content is the message of Christ, death on Calvary for the sins of mankind. We should spend our lives bringing this life-giving message to others. That doesn't mean we're in full-time ministry, but we're always looking at an opportunity to spill out some of the contents in the life of someone else. Dr. Henry Jowett, preacher of a previous generation, said, a ministry that costs nothing accomplishes nothing. If you're looking for easy paths, then ministry, even as a layman, is not for you. Easy paths make for crooked rivers and crooked people. So he's saying a ministry that costs nothing accomplishes nothing. In other words, yes, Jesus Christ made the sacrifice. Salvation doesn't cost us something. But living for Christ, a life of dedication will cost you something. Matter of fact, it will cost you everything. In other words, no cross, no crown. If you don't want to make sacrifices, don't expect a reward. No cross, no crown. It's a challenging passage of Scripture. Every time I read it, every time I study it, every time I preach it, uh, I'm challenged personally. 
fits right in with what we taught in Sunday school this morning. At a narrow place in the Grand Canyon, the Colorado River is stopped by the Hoover Dam. Many of you have been there as I have, resulting in the creation of two artificial, two huge artificial lakes, Lake Powell in Utah and Lake Mead on the Arizona-Nevada border, which, by the way, is the largest reservoir in the United States. Before the dam, this area is called the Mojave Desert in northwest Arizona, was largely unvisited, uninhabitable due to the harsh terrain, the lack of roads, and extreme summer temperatures. Now, the lakes form the Lake Mead National Recreation Area, covering 1.5 million acres of water. This project brought fertility to the entire desert southwest from Arizona, Utah, Nevada, New Mexico, and California. During the construction, over 100 men lost their lives building the massive 726-foot-high dam. Most of them are buried in there. Upon its completion, a great plaque was set into the concrete which states, maybe you've seen it, these men died that the desert might rejoice and blossom as the rose. And it has. These men died building a project that has prospered the southwest region, desert regions of our country. We respect them for that. But we give our lives a little at a time. We give our lives that others might have life. We take this earthen vessel which contains this wonderful treasure of the gospel message and we spill it over into the lives of those who do not know him. I hope, I pray that that is your desire. And we need God's help. We know that. We're not all bold Apostle Pauls. We're not fearless witnesses, but we need God's help. But if you never make it your aim, if you never draw up a list and say, this is my relative that doesn't know Christ, this is my neighbor who doesn't know Christ, this is my work colleague that doesn't know Christ, and God give me the boldness, the words, the opportunity to share Christ, we will never do it. Let's make it our aim, because we have a glorious message. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. This text is just so rich and resplendent of truth and challenge and encouragement. We don't have to be perfect. We don't have to have it all together to be a vessel that you use. And we're glad, because that would disqualify all of us. So we're glad for the encouragement. We're excited about the opportunities that you will bring to us. Open our mouth. Help us to share this wonderful gospel that's changed us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.